REDs are not equipped for inpatient stays. How common is ED boarding of the critically ill patient? There is no universal definition of ED boarding. It's pretty frightening. A lot of critical care is preventing bad things from happening. Every time we give a transfusion, it's like a mini transplant. This is what we do. We take care of sick people. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy you are listening to us, joining us for this podcast. Let me bring in two of my co-hosts. No, not three this week. Two of my co-hosts. That's because Dr. Rob Rodriguez has heard the call for help from colleagues and family in Texas, and Rob has deployed from UCSF to help out in an ICU down in Texas because they are in the midst, certainly, of surges in COVID volume. So our thoughts, wishes are to all of our colleagues in areas across the U.S. and across the world that are having very, very high numbers of COVID-positive patients and caring for them across the spectrum of relatively benign illness all the way through to critical care. So that's going to leave myself, Peter, and John for this podcast. Peter, let me ask, how are you doing? Now, we're recording this at the end of July. Maybe give us an update on what the past few weeks have been like for you. Yeah, so thanks, Mike. And so just a shout out to Rob, too, for doing the right thing. In New Orleans, we have been kind of steady between 28 and 32 inpatients with COVID, roughly around 10 ICU patients. And it's been that way for the last four weeks. Just yesterday, though, it blew up and we wound up with about 12 patients in one 16-hour period, which kicked the ICU up from 8 to 10 to suddenly 16 patients. And we're hoping that is just an anomaly. That is our hope, but we'll see. Yeah, I certainly hope that's just kind of a blip in the data and it's not the beginning of yet a second wave for you in New Orleans. John, how are things north of here in Baltimore in Philadelphia for you? On the COVID front, we unfortunately had a visit from the Florida Marlins that threatened to take out our entire baseball club. (laughs) But all kidding aside, I hope everyone involved is well. It just goes to show how wieldy this viral infection is. But our hospital, actually, our emergency department's back to pre-COVID volumes. In fact, just this morning, we had 28 admitted patients in our emergency department waiting for beds who had been with us overnight. So despite the little lull in acute volumes over the past few months, we are back in the full swing of things. And I would wholeheartedly agree with you down a little south of you at at Maryland. We have opened things a lot up in terms of hospital operations. So our elective procedures, surgeries that have gotten backed up in the last several months. And as a result, just like you're experiencing at Penn, we have a return of boarding in our emergency department and boarding of some pretty sick patients. And with that in mind, it really brings us to the topic of our podcast today. And this is going to be based on a really, really great article that I would encourage all of you to go take a look at. It just got published a few weeks ago in Critical Care Medicine. And it is mainly by a lot of EM critical care folks that you will recognize. Lead author is Dr. Nick Moore, but you'll see names like Brian Westman, Tim Ellender, Lillian Emlett, Kevin Jones, Kyle Gunnarsson, Evie Marcolini, who you've heard here on the podcast before. They're just some of the authors on this, I think, very important paper titled, 
boarding of critically ill patients in the emergency department. And in essence, this is a white paper of a task force that both SCCM and ASEP jointly convene to put a little bit more data around boarding of critically ill patients in the ED and what that means. So Peter, I'm going to turn things over to you. Give us kind of the background lead-in into the paper itself. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you. I think we all have experienced this and know that our own ED boarding has increased. We know that ED volumes have increased over the last 10 years, approximately 30%. You know, during that same period of time, many hospitals have closed, couldn't deal with the competition there. And so that's made our jobs that much more difficult. This decreased inpatient capacity is considered the primary driver for ED boarding and overcrowding. So ED boarding has become widespread and is associated with adverse patient outcomes. Our EDs are not equipped for inpatient stays, nor are our nurses trained to meet those needs. The impact of boarding on those critical ill patients has been not so well studied. ED operations and physician focus tends to be on emergent evaluation, resuscitation, and management, not on what is known as kind of the longitudinal care of patients. This is given the increased burden of critically ill ED boarders, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and ASAP, as Mike stated, joined together to do this ED critical care medicine boarding task force. Again, Those members included emergency medicine, critical care medicine, and acute care nurse practitioners, and actually a clinical pharmacist as well. And this is the white paper that we're reviewing. Thanks, Peter. That's a great lead-in. And in terms of this paper itself, there were several areas that this task force wanted to focus on, primarily three. In essence, they wanted to describe what was the current or what is the current best available evidence on the frequency of ED boarding of critically ill patients. Now, importantly, what they did is focus on adults. They focused on the U.S. population, given the changes or different resources, per se, in international environments. So it was limited to adults, limited to the U.S., and they took a look at what the available literature was since the year 2000. As a second area of focus, they wanted to summarize the association between ED critical care boarding and ultimately with patient-centered outcomes. And then finally, what were some local mitigation strategies that have been used to combat those adverse patient-oriented outcomes that we see from boarding of critically ill patients in the emergency department? So to that end, what they did is a systematic review, looking for that literature once again, focusing on adults and limiting it to those patients that they identified or the papers identified from the ED to the ICU since the year 2000. Overall, what they found is about 174 papers, but then when they applied their exclusion criteria, 18 really formed the basis for this particular analysis. So let's go through some of those results. John, I'm going to turn to you. What did they find in terms of overall the extent of critical care medicine that's currently being provided in our emergency departments? Yeah, absolutely. So I think all of us who work in the emergency department recognize how much critical care we actually provide in the initial couple hours of care when patients come into our ED. And in fact, this paper found that ED visits account, at least for critically ill patients, have increased by 80% between 2006 and 2014. So what we're feeling in the emergency department of an increased burden of critical illness is actually appears like that's panning out in the literature. The number of intubated ED patients had increased 
by 16% during this period of time, and approximately 250,000 patients are ventilated in U.S. emergency departments with a median length of stay of more than three hours. So it's no longer where we're providing initial resuscitation, intubation, and transition to the ICU. These patients are requiring prolonged care in our emergency departments, which is requiring a little bit of a expanded skill set on the emergency department physician side. Over that same period of time, it looks like minimal growth in ED and ICU capacity, which has increased the resource strain. And in academic centers in particular, estimates of critical care billing are between 15 and 20 percent of all the billing that's done in the ED. So this is a significant amount of critical care time. Thanks, John. I guess perhaps, Peter, I'm going to turn back to you, but maybe we should have started with this question. Does the literature provide any guidance on really how we define boarding? You know, that's a great question, Mike, and it's one that we really argue over vehemently at my hospital and at many other hospitals. So there is no universal definition of ED boarding. It's pretty frightening. And there are nine different classifications for boarding identified in the paper. Some identified it as the time after the decision to admit was made. I tend to like that one as well. Some used thresholds of two hours, four hours, and six hours. Some looked at a total number of ED hours that the patient stayed in the department. Our lovely joint commission recommends boarding no longer than four hours. I mean, they don't live in our world, so I think that that's kind of artificial and contrived. ASEP itself states that boarding begins after the admission or observation order is placed. Again, there's no universal agreed upon definition. All right. Well, hopefully at the end of this discussion, we'll get back to what this white paper, this task force does recommend for how we define borders. Well, John, you alluded to and told us how much critical care is being provided in the ED. Let's drill down now specifically on boarding. How common is ED boarding of the critically ill patient? Well, unfortunately, a lot of the data that we have on ED boarding in terms of the literature is really left to retrospective single center studies. So there doesn't appear to be any high quality data on this phenomenon. And given the heterogeneity, a pooled estimate of the standard frequency of boarding really couldn't be obtained for this paper. The authors did suggests that the mean length of stay ranges from about one and a half hours to as high as 8.8 hours. So it's a pretty wide range for a mean, but certainly it's not an insignificant amount of time. And the incidence ranged from 2% to 87%. So probably depending on where you work, there might be a higher incidence of critical care boarding your emergency department compared to some higher functioning community centers. So certainly Some centers do better than others, but I suspect that some centers and hospitals have different resources available to their emergency departments. Yes, well, well said, John. And Peter, before we move on to mitigation strategies, perhaps one of the most key questions, taking a look at the data, the literature from these 18 papers they pulled, what were those clinically relevant patient-centered outcomes that were associated with the critically ill ED border? You know, this makes it a little bit more difficult because the majority of the literature we're reviewing is retrospective and prospective observational studies. We do know that there's an increased duration of mechanical ventilation if you're a boarder. We know that there's a longer ICU length of stay as well as a longer hospital length of stay. 
as a result of those increased lengths, you know that there's going to be an associated increase in hospital mortality. There's low quality process related care. Again, simple things like turning patients, VTE prophylaxis, head of the bed elevations, vent management, all those things are tough. Post-intubation care elements are often not even performed, as I just stated. Delays in antibiotic administration, and we talked about that here, it's typically not the first dose of antibiotics, but the subsequent dosages tend to be delayed or missed. Fluid administration is not as tightly controlled, as well as the initiation of home medications. And then we know for stroke patients, there's an increased probability of poor neurological recovery and our process where we're doing swallow studies and the like tend to fall off. There's increased medication-related adverse events. And one thing that the paper did not mention, but I will mention, is that patient satisfaction from both patients as well as family members are decreased associated with boarding patients. Well said. So thank you, Peter and John. That's a a lot of information uh, boiling it down to, we know that a lot of critical care is provided in the emergency department. We know that boarding occurs in a lot of EDs and it is associated with really significant, significant patient outcomes or clinically relevant outcomes. Now, turning to some mitigation strategies that the task force, the white paper recommended, certainly would want to direct your attention to their supplemental table three, where these authors have done a great job really pulling together a lot of best practices that you've heard us talk about in various podcasts throughout the last several years here on CCPEM. So let's kind of just go through them, bring them all together, and talk about a few of these recommendations from this paper as you are caring for the critically ill border. And these kind of things set themselves up really nicely for incorporation into EHR, into order sets, especially when you are working at a resource challenge location where you may not have as much nursing, you may not have as many respiratory therapists, you may not have that clinical ED pharmacist to assist you. So, John, I'm going to turn back to you. One of the first areas that table talks about in terms of mitigation strategies is around sedation practices. So what are some key points, some pearls on sedation practices for our critically ill ED border? Yeah, so I agree, Mike. The authors did a great job boiling a lot of these best practices down to the things that we see commonly in these boarding patients. So post-intubation sedation, which I know we've talked about a lot, but is critical in terms of making sure that we're getting it right up front as best we can. So things like early deep sedation really is associated with longer ventilator duration. And essentially prolonged mechanical ventilation leads to oftentimes longer weaning times, which ends up patients with needing tracheostomies. So excessive sedation of the intubated adult in the ED was associated with increased patient morbidity and even in-hospital mortality. So using goal-directed sedation scales, such as the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale or the RAS Scale or the Sedation Agitation Scale, these are things that are valid and reliable in terms of providing our nursing staff with goal-directed endpoints of their sedation, which can allow us to really follow the recommended guidelines. Pain should be routinely assessed for all intubated patients using, again, another validated objective scoring scale like the Critical Care Pain Observation Tool or Behavioral Pain Scale are common ones that are often used. 
certainly looking for agitation. We should be assessing for these in our intubated patients and using our sedation, our RASCOR in particular, to be titrating to a light goal of RAS, like a zero to minus one seems to be fairly reasonable. And per consensus guidelines, light level sedation should really be targeted. And within the first 48 hours, if it's not, it can be associated with worst outcomes. So analgesia should be optimized with opioids, and that's still recommended by the guidelines, as opposed to focusing on sedation with non-benzodiazepine sedations often suggested. I was just going to go on a benzo rant there, but certainly trying to avoid the use of benzodiazepines is still a goal, I think, and something we've harped on for the past couple of years, really trying to minimize benzos as we have found that there's increased incidence of delirium and morbidity associated with that. And lastly, institutions should individually kind of define the frequency of these assessments. I think in the emergency department, sometimes when nurses are stretched between a few different patients, if you can decrease that nursing to patient ratio to one to one or at a maximum one to two, you can often achieve these objective goals and hopefully reduce the patient's inpatient morbidity. Outstanding. Well, let's transition from sedation practices, Peter, over to something that you've educated, you've taught us a lot about over the years, and that's mechanical ventilation practices in the critically ill ED border. What are some nice pearls or recommendations from the paper? So some great recommendations from the paper. And those of you who are interested in doing QI projects for your own ED, you can look at the Love ED study, which we kind of spoke about here before. But it suggests really that the boarding patients that are ventilated often receive suboptimal management in the emergency department. And this often impacts their initial inpatient management. So implementing a protocol or a bundle, if you would, in the ED, targeting what we know as either low tidal volume ventilation or lung protective ventilation is reasonable. And it's associated with significant improvements in the delivery of really what's known as the safest mechanical ventilation, and it improves outcomes. It influences the ventilator settings in the ICU and actually reduces pulmonary complications. One of the things that we want to avoid is even early hyperoxia. So there's been increased attention to lowering O2 and keeping the minimal requirements that are needed. And again, if you don't do this, you wind up having increased ICU and hospital mortality. And again, associated with increased ventilator-free days if we adhere to this. We know that ED exposure to hyperoxia is really, really common. And as I said, associated with increased mortality, that immediately addressing this post-intubation would be helpful. And we know that there is quite likely harm to this early hyperoxia. So we want to target a normoxia. So PaO2 is between 60 and 120 right off the bat from the initiation of mechanical ventilation that that suggestive target improves outcomes. So we know that end tidal CO2 monitoring by continuous waveform capnography is recommended. It's pretty amazing when you see our EMS companies come in with end tidal monitoring, continuous waveform, and then hand off to the ED who doesn't continue it. It's a little bit disconcerting to note that. We would also want to make sure that we use the end tidal CO2 to check for dislodgement of the endotracheal tube and to provide real-time feedback for us on cardiopulmonary function. 
Now, we talked about that here before, is really to get an accurate height on each and every patient because we know that the tidal volume requirements are more closely linked to their height than it is to their weight. And this helps us accurately measure what we know as the predicted body weight. This is to optimize tidal volumes. And we know that the tidal volumes should be somewhere between six and eight cc's per kilogram using this predicted body weight. And again, I would be cautious with going over eight or even using eight. I would tend towards six to seven, but the article is pushing towards six or eight. We want to start the supplemental oxygen at lower targets to generate the minimal required FiO2 to meet oxygen saturations greater than 90% and or PaO2 between 55 and 80, again, avoiding hyperoxia. To achieve this goal, we want early monitoring with an arterial blood gas probably within 30 minutes of intubation and mechanical ventilation. And from there, we can probably, for the bulk of time, use our pulse oximetry and end tidal CO2. We want to match our PEEP usage and FiO2 according to what's the ARDS net protocol. And so all of your ICUs should be using this. So getting that bundled down to the ED and employ it is fairly easy to do. We would like to have a target plateau pressure less than 30 millimeters of mercury because that's associated with decreased risk for pulmonary injury. And then end-tidal CO2 suggested to guide our vent management as we discussed before. The capnography is suggested to identify any abnormalities of exhaled airflow and look for evidence of obstruction or reactive airways disease. And then volumetric capnography is suggested to assess CO2 elimination and the ratio of dead space volume to tidal volume to optimize our mechanical ventilation. So there's a lot we can do with the ventilators that change outcome in our patients. And these are bundles that are pretty easy to move into effect. It's just making sure that we do it. That was outstanding, Peter. Thanks. So we've hit sedation practices, mechanical ventilation practices. John, the next area under infection prevention, we haven't done a deep dive into, but certainly in critically ill ED patients, we're putting lines in, maybe central lines, maybe A lines, monitoring output, perhaps putting in a Foley. What do we need to take away from this or think about in caring for the critically ill patient boarding in the ED regarding just infection prevention? Well, certainly, Mike. And I think as Peter was talking about with the ability to provide bundled care, there's certainly an ability to implement bundles related to prevention of things. And I think all of us can appreciate that a lot of critical care is preventing bad things from happening after we've done the necessary intervention. So the big three that this paper discussed were prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonias, central line-associated bloodstream infections, and catheter-related UTIs, so essentially a UTI after placing a Foley. And there's some common themes here. So at least for VAP, you know, VAPs are significant in terms of causes prolonged intubation and need for excessive mechanical ventilation duration. So things we can do in the emergency department to prevent this are things like maintaining head of the bed elevation, 30 to 45 degrees, unless obviously contraindicated, focusing on suctioning excessive secretions, particularly the subglottic secretions right above the endotracheal tube cuff, 
using a closed suctioning system. Oral hygiene is a big one. So particularly if you can, in your post-intubation bundle, including a chlorhexidine wash solution after intubation be done by nursing. And this kind of prevents any unnecessary bacterial secretions getting into the lungs. And this goes along with checking the cuff pressure. So every few hours after maintaining a cuff pressure between 20 and 30 centimeters of water seems to be good. And this can be coordinated with your respiratory therapists. Now, what about our central line? Certainly our sick patients require vasopressors, particularly as the doses go up, may need a central line. What can we do to prevent infections of these lines? What we do downstairs makes a difference. So things like standardized hand hygiene during the procedure with maximum barrier precautions while inserting these central lines, if possible, we should try to do these things. Not all lines are crash lines, so we don't need to necessarily just put the line in and move along. If we can use a standardized approach to improving the cleanliness of our line insertion is certainly appreciated and does help. Standardizing use of aseptic technique for changing needleless connectors. So we do know that it's maybe not about the location, but how often these lines are used. So how we're using these central lines, certainly washing the ports each time we access them with alcohol-based solution often can reduce the incidence of blood-borne bacterial infections as a result of our central lines. And as far as caudies go, I think this one is something that we're all familiar hearing about with joint commission. But if the patient does require placement of a Foley catheter, make sure we're using all the CDC prevention guidelines and make sure they're adhered to, and they should remain in place only as long as needed. So if the patient doesn't need it, maybe a single straight cath might be the way to go as opposed to an indwelling Foley. Great, great pearls, John. All right, Peter, back to you. You've taught us, educated us about mechanical ventilation practices, and I think another favorite of yours is hemodynamic management. What are a few pearls that you have also from this particular paper on hemodynamic management in that critically ill border? You got it. And so this is something that is in our wheelhouse. And so we want to make sure that we're effectively managing our critically ill patients. And that means assessment of their cardiovascular performance and determining which therapeutic interventions are most indicated. Again, we want to consider other assessment variables such as what's going on with the right heart, the right ventricle being maximized, intrathoracic pressure associated with mechanical ventilation, how is the vena cava filling, and venous compliance when considering whether patients are fluid responsive, whether we need to titrate fluids or discontinue fluids, or whether it's time to add our vasoactive agents on both vasoactive agents as well as vasopressors. And so bedside monitoring using point-of-care ultrasonography, I mean, we're enormous fans of this. And this is not just a one-time peak, but this is serial measures utilizing bedside ultrasound. And there's also various invasive and non-invasive monitoring techniques that can provide really a multimodal approach to some really basic hemodynamic monitoring. And this can aid in really optimizing resuscitation strategies and doing it in a thoughtful manner. Completely agree. I think all three of us, and, and all four of us even speaking for Rob, we are definite fans of using point-of-care ultrasound in assisting with our hemodynamic management for these patients. Well, John, often critically ill patients will need blood products, specifically pack red blood cells. Any pearls or mitigation strategies, consistent recommendations on what we should be using as transfusion triggers? Absolutely. So unlike a lot of the other things, there is a 
pretty good volume of data and literature out there that supports some transfusion triggers for our critically ill patients. And as our patients stay with us for a little while, maybe it's that GI bleeder or patients that's just critically ill on a chronic basis, they get transferred from a long-term care facility, they may have a low hemoglobin. Now, how low and whether or not it's affecting this patient is something you have to decide clinically, but there is some guidance that's based on pretty sound evidence to suggest when we should transfuse. So in general, for most critically ill patients, I don't think there's any need to transfuse to a hemoglobin concentration if it's less than seven. I think we have generally agreed that this is a reasonable threshold for most critically ill patients. Now, there certainly may be some outliers in terms of types of patients where you might transfuse if that hemoglobin's above seven. So this might be your acute bleeding patient. And this paper recommends specifically greater than 30% of their blood volume loss. So we're talking about like a liter or more. But effectively, if the patient's tachycardic and hypotensive, I'd call that symptomatic hypotension. And I'd continue to resuscitate that patient with blood, not crystalloid. A hemoglobin less than eight in specific high-risk patients, so patients with significant and chronic cardiovascular or chronic pulmonary disease, specifically patients receiving chemotherapy as well, they may benefit with a transfusion trigger of eight and less than seven for patients with chronic anemia, sickle cell disease, and causes for poor oxygen delivery. At the end of the day, I kind of frame it to the residents that every time we give a transfusion, it's like a mini transplant, and there's a risk of that patient have a reaction to that blood product that we're giving them. So if they don't need it, don't give it to them. But obviously, as a clinician, you want to take into account the patient's comorbidities and have a good reason if you are deciding to transfuse above or beyond what we would expect for most chronic or general critically ill patients. I like that thought and how you approach that, John, in terms of a mini transplant. I'm going to be using that in weeks to come for sure. And lastly, Peter, on some mitigation strategies, I think a very important area that just sometimes we don't necessarily think about, or we think about it maybe a little bit later in the course. But what big pearl does this paper offer in consideration of resource management regarding mitigation and care of the critically ill border? When we talk about other things that we can do, I'm an enormous fan of utilizing palliative care. And so what I think we should be doing as a routine for all of our critically ill patients is having very frank discussions with family members and patients, if they have the capacity, about what their goals of care are, and then honor those goals of care. Palliative medicine is high riser in emergency medicine right now because we know that it's the right thing to do. We want to be equally aggressive with comfort care measures in those patients who desire comfort care measures. We're not limiting therapeutics. We're just shifting our gears from acute resuscitative measures to acute comfort care measures. And I think that that's really important because it treats the patient with dignity as well as the family helps them with their own moral distress and bereavement. So I would not delay in bringing palliative medicine on. And again, I'm not a strong fan of continuing life support measures when there is no benefit to these measures. In other words, when the measures aren't indicated, just because we can do CPR doesn't mean that we should be doing CPR. Wholeheartedly agree. That was perfectly stated, Peter. 
Now, we've got just a few minutes left here in our podcast. That was the main area looking at those mitigation strategies. Just a few areas that the white paper touches on. What about hospital solutions? So a lot of this mitigation stuff was related to ED solutions, but what about hospital solutions? And we'll refer you to the white paper here. Essentially, a lot of these strategies are tried and it will depend on your local resources, but there's not a whole lot of literature to say that they actually have improved flow of critically ill patients from the ED to the ICU. Folks have looked at active bed management with even physician level system control of patient movement, shifting the location of boarding, specifically say during surge conditions, putting, for example, medical ICU patients in a surgical ICU, Some have looked at reassigning ICU providers and nurses to care at locations outside the ICU, alternative sites of care, and even intensivists rounding in the emergency department and placing orders on these boarding patients. And a lot of it is going to be dependent on what you have as your local resource. But once again, there's no conclusive literature-based hospital solution of these that they review that has been definitively shown to be superior than any other solution. And then lastly, the paper task force does touch on some ED-based ICUs. And John, I got to turn back to you as you have experience with an ED-based ICU or resuscitation unit. Maybe bring us down the home stretch here and talk about that. Well, certainly, Mike. I think the ED-based ICU strategy, again, as we talk about resources, it's an expensive endeavor to go down. And it really depends on the volume of borders and critical illness that's coming into your emergency department It does provide some short-term critical care that might replace some of that prolonged ED boarding care. It tends to focus the attention on early respiratory, cardiovascular, and neurologic care of the critically ill patient that might not get that close attention in a large cohort of ED patients. Unfortunately, the setup of these units and these clinical areas differ all throughout the country in terms of how they operate, flow, and the staffing, how they're arranged. There is some observational data to suggest there may be a benefit. One particular was in the JAMA Open by the Michigan group. They found 15% reduction in risk-adjusted 30-day mortality, significant reductions in 24-hour hospital mortality, 13% reduction ICU admissions, and 37% reduction in short-stay admissions. But to be honest, our experience here at Penn has been mixed. We just recently published a paper that found no difference in hospital mortality, and particularly with heterogeneous respiratory failure and sepsis. There did appear to be a benefit in acute toxicologic critical illness and DKA patients in another paper. So certainly there are some predictable course diseases that might turn around quickly that EDICUs may benefit in caring for. The medical critical illness is complex often, though. It doesn't have a defined course like a lot of our surgical critical illness. So it makes it challenging. So the data is really out on the benefit of these resuscitation units, although it does feel good to take care of these patients early and do a lot of these things that we're talking about. And it's an ongoing kind of experience. So hopefully we'll know more in the next five to 10 years, but certainly an interesting idea and a system that's always, I think, worth exploring more. Outstanding. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, John, for an amazing discussion on an incredibly common condition, incredibly common patient that we have in the emergency department. Just to kind of wrap things up here, the task force, the white paper concludes with a few things that we've already touched on. In fact, that there remains no universal definition of ED boarding, 
of the critically ill. This particular white paper recommends defining that boarding as time spent in the ED after you've made the decision to admit to the ICU or after six hours in the ED from the time of their arrival, as that's when typically most of the literature has talked about increases in a lot of those adverse patient-centered outcomes. We know that it occurs very common. John reviewed a lot of the literature on how common critical care is delivered in the emergency department. We know that boarding is present across a wide range of EDs, and it's most common in large academic centers. And as Peter reviewed, it is associated with worse patient-centered outcomes. We touched on a lot of mitigation strategies that can be bundled, incorporated into your EHR so you can provide standardized care to any critically ill patient boarding in your ED. John, any final thoughts as we wrap up the podcast? I think this was a really good review paper. And as we do get back to our pre-COVID times and potentially COVID plus pre-COVID times as we move forward through the fall, I think a lot of critical illness and care for critical illness in the ED is paying attention to the details and trying to make sure that we're avoiding doing unnecessary things. So being thoughtful about our sedation practices, all the things we discuss is super, super important. It's never a bad time to rebuff on these things. So it's definitely a worthwhile read. And thanks for bringing this article to the podcast, Mike. And Peter, final thoughts as we close out the podcast. Just two quick points. Number one, consider using this white paper as a good QI project. You can do it in pieces, whether it be just mechanical ventilation, whether it be the VTE prophylaxis or ahead of the bed elevation, just choose one and and institute it in your own ED. It's a simple thing to do that really does change outcomes. And then lastly, this is what we do. We're in the emergency department. We don't call in and say, you know what? I'm not going to intubate the patient today because we're going to cancel that intubation because they just ate. We take care of sick people, which means the ratios aren't ideal for us oftentimes because we don't have control over that environment. Many of our ICU colleagues can say, I'm sorry, we can't take the patient. We're at capacity for nursing. And it puts an undue stress on our nursing care and our physician care. And so I think we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves when those things occur. Great, great way to end things, Peter. My thanks to both of you for a really, truly outstanding discussion. And once again, we'll refer and link to the article, this white paper, in our handout for this particular podcast. As we wrap up, as we've done the last many, many podcasts, we want to thank all of you in terms of the hard work, the countless hours you're putting in to care for patients infected with the COVID-19 virus. We are right there with you and certainly sending our support to Rob as he is in the midst of things along with our EM, CCM, and acute care hospital colleagues in Texas caring for the overwhelming numbers of COVID-positive patients there. That's going to do it for this podcast. Our thanks to all of you for tuning in this week. We are certainly going to look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.